Well, today we're going to talk about the wonderful question, what is sin? And we all might feel like, well, I can answer that. But there's a lot of deep questions that come along with thinking through sin and what the Bible says about sin. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to go deeper into this question. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word wants to reveal to us the depravity of our hearts, that you want us to understand not just that we are sinners, but that you have sent us a savior so that you can bring us healing and hope, redemption, that you would have no condemnation in us, God. And so I just pray that as we study this topic of sin, that we would be humble, that we would be learners, that we would consider the things that are mentioned and not mentioned in the Bible, and that we would become more biblical in our understanding of sin after today. In your name we pray. Amen. So here are the things we're going to kind of talk about today. We are going to define what sin is, how we inherit sin. Can God ever sin? What about infants that might die or the age of accountability? Is that something that's biblical? Are there degrees of sin in the Bible? How does sin affect us? What happens when a Christian sins? What is the unpardonable sin? And finally, why does God punish sin? So we have a lot to think through today. So first, let's talk about what is sin and how would you define it? Well, first, we have to think about how sin just disrupts everything, right? We aren't living the lives that we were in originally designed to live. And we don't live in a world that God originally designed for us to live in. As presented in the Bible, the story of the human race is the story of God fixing broken people living in a broken world. So we can define sin as this, any failure to conform to God's moral law in act, attitude, or nature. I'll say that again. Sin is any failure to conform to God's moral law in act, attitude, or nature. Anything contrary to God's moral law is actually contrary to his character. It's contrary to God himself. God hates sin because it directly contradicts everything that he is. It contradicts his holiness, and so he is required to hate it. We see this in the Ten Commandments. It prohibits sinful actions like do not murder, do not commit adultery, but it also shows you sinful attitudes like do not covet. And then we see this in the New Testament when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and he prohibited attitudes like anger and lust. So a life pleasing to God has a moral purity to it, not only in its actions, but in our desires of our heart. Sin can come from the desires of our heart. And 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is just lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We need to realize, though, it's not just that we sin, but sin is in our very nature. The essence of of who we are as people before Christ is that we are sinful. Our nature is sinful. Paul explains this in Ephesians 2, 3, and that is why God sees us as children of wrath before we come to Christ. Because King Solomon says in 1 Kings eight forty six, there is no one who does not sin. So we are all sinners, we all have a sinful nature, and we are all children of wrath when we are born. So the next question is, well, can God ever sin? If God is able to do anything, is he able to sin? Since sin entirely contradicts who God is, God cannot sin. And we should also never blame God for sin or think that he bears the responsibility for sin because it is contrary to who he is. Deuteronomy 32.4 says that God is without iniquity, which means sin. He is just and upright. And also we see in Ephesians 1.11, since God works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
that must mean that God somehow, somehow ordained that sin would come into the world. He knew it. He allowed it, right? He decided that he would allow moral creatures to willfully and voluntarily choose to sin. But yet we cannot blame God for sin because that would be blasphemy against the character of God. So he allowed it, but that is not something he wanted to have happen. Job 34.10 says this, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. God cannot do wrong or wickedness. So what's the origin of sin? Maybe you know this, but this is going to help us understand then how we can gain salvation as well. Sin existed in Satan and his demons before Adam and Eve disobeyed, right? We know that the angels fell first. But sin entered the world. The world became sinful. Creation experienced sin when Adam and Eve chose to disobey what God commanded, not because Satan came into the world to tempt them. God told Adam in Genesis 2.17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. One little rule, one little do not. And he couldn't do it, right? And, and really, it did start with Eve, right? Eve trusted. Now think about this and how we could relate to this. Eve trusted her own evaluation of what was right and what would be good for her. Do we do that? We evaluate, well, what seems right to me and what might be good for me? I'm going to go do that. She allowed God's words to be defined by her words of what she thought would be right or wrong. And so sometimes we disregard what God says because I think I know what would be right and good for me. And we are deceiving ourselves. And we are justifying sin in our life. She saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to her eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. All of that made sense to her, what she saw, what she thought, what it was about. And so she took the fruit and ate it in Genesis 3, 6. When both of them, when she and Adam ate the fruit of the tree, they directly disobeyed God's command because he said, do not, do not. And as a result, Adam's nature became sinful. All of mankind's nature became sinful. It is essential to insist that this story in the Bible is a historical narrative. It's not just a story. It's not just an allegory. This really happened. The fall of Adam and Eve really happened. And we have to say that because there are a lot of liberal theologians that want to take Genesis and say it's just fable, it's just story. But this is where we get the foundation of our theology on sin. So it has to be seen as a historical narrative. We see that even the New Testament authors affirmed what was happening in Genesis. When you look at Romans 5.12, it says this, Sin came into the world through one man. Who is that? Adam, right? And 2 Corinthians 11.3 says that the serpent deceived Eve by being cunning. So this is in the New Testament talking about the serpent deceiving Eve. So the serpent was a real physical serpent. This wasn't just a fake idea. It was a real serpent that was talking because the empowerment of Satan was speaking through him. Okay, so it was a real snake that Satan was using to speak through. So we must acknowledge that all sin is irrational. Boy, do we want to rationalize sin sometimes. And I have to say to myself, no, all sin is irrational. Though people sometimes persuade themselves they have a good reason for sinning, when examined in the light of truth on the last day, in the final judgment, it will be seen in every single case that sin ultimately doesn't make sense. And it never brings God glory. And it is never for your good. Sin is never for your good. So what is the doctrine of inherited sin? Adam's sin caused us to inherit a sinful nature that would naturally oppose God and his moral law. 
And there's two ways that we inherited sin. The first one is we inherited the guilt. We are guilty of sin, okay? We have inherited guilt for sin from Adam. We are counted as guilty because of Adam's sin. Paul explains this in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, sin came into the world through one man and death, there's the consequence, through sin. So death, what happened to death? Not just Adam and Eve. Death spread to all men, all people, because all sinned. So we're seeing Adam's sin created death for every single person. The guilt is on us, and the requirement of that guilt is death. Through the sin of Adam, all have sinned. And this means God thought of us as having sinned when Adam disobeyed. Going on in Romans 5, 18 and 19, it says, Therefore, as one trespass or one sin led to the condemnation for all people. There it is right there. One sin led to the condemnation of all people. So one act of righteousness, look how it's compared. So one act of righteousness, which was Jesus, leads to justification, just as if I've never sinned, and life for all men. So Adam led for all of us to be condemned and Jesus gives an opportunity for all of us to be made righteous again and for all guilt to be taken away. It says, for as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus's obedient life, many will be made righteous. Now, interesting, all are condemned under Adam, but did it say all will be righteous? No, it said many will become righteous. So there is a choice that needs to happen for you to receive the righteousness of God, to receive Jesus in order to not have that guilt and condemnation. We see that in Romans 5, 18. I would encourage you, you know, as we are now starting some deeper theology on sin and salvation, maybe start reading the book of Romans. Romans is all theology and Romans is a lot about salvation and Romans is going to have the words like justification, sanctification, glorification, redemption. If you start reading it and start asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you this theology before I teach it, you're just going to fall more in love with the book of Romans. And so even though we're not doing a deep dive in Romans, you're going to see it throughout the next probably four or five lessons that we're going to be going through. So the doctrine of inherited sin from Adam is called original sin. Maybe you've heard that term before. It is original in that it comes from Adam and is also original in that we have it from the beginning of our existence as persons. And this is going to affect a lot of what we're talking about today. It is inherited to everyone. Everyone is condemned. We are born with a sinful nature. The original sin's already in us. So this is going to follow through in some of the things we're going to talk about in a moment. So when we first confront the idea that we have been counted guilty because of Adam's sin, we might protest and people will say, well, that's not fair. I didn't make that sin. Him and Eve were the one that took that fruit, right? It's unfair. You're going to hear that from people that don't want to believe in original sin. We did not actually decide to sin. So how can we be counted as guilty? That's what some people are going to say. But I didn't do that. So here's how you need to think of it. If we think it's unfair for us to be represented by Adam and his sin, then we should also think it's unfair for us to be represented by Christ and to have his righteousness imputed to us. We're going to talk about that word in a few weeks, but put on to us, right? Given, I mean, how can we say we deserve that? Because even if you don't believe in original sin, at some point you will sin, <laughs> right? So even if they don't believe in original sin, probably by our age we've sinned and we need Christ's righteousness on us because we don't believe in good works saving us, right? So it's a disconnect when you see the verses I just showed you in Romans. We have original sin and that's why we need Jesus's righteousness. We can't say, oh, it doesn't count for me because it's both sides of the story in all of these verses. This process that God uses is the same. So remember Romans 5.12, I'll read it again. As by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's because God regards the human race as a whole. 
and we are represented by Adam as the head and his decisions affected us. So the first one we said was we are inherited guilt for sin. The second thing that we inherit with sin is we inherit corruption. So we inherit guilt and we inherit corruption. That is point two. We have a sinful nature because Adam sinned. And David even said, Psalm 51, 5, he goes, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David is admitting he had sin. He was, had a sin nature even in the womb. That is interesting. This is showing as much as we are made in the image of God, even as we are being created, we are conceived in sin. He's affirming the moment of conception we have a sinful nature. And think about it. Children don't need to be taught wrong. Even before a baby can crawl or walk, you can see that, yes, you could say, oh, they're crying just because they have needs. They're either wet or hungry or tired. But there are times those babies get angry. And you know it's because they're being selfish, right? They are all self-consuming. So even before they start crawling and touching things they shouldn't touch, which again shows the independence and the sinful nature, it's even before a baby can move, we can see glimpses of this. So because of this inherent corruption, we are not able to do anything that pleases God. And this is because in our sinful nature, we lack spiritual goodness before God. This is also contrary. Oh, but aren't some of us good? Don't some of us have spiritual goodness? Every part of us is affected by sin. Our mind, our hearts, our physical bodies have ailments because of sin. Everything is affected by our sin. Romans 7:18 says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Nothing good. And Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Romans 8, 8 says, those in the flesh cannot please God. It is impossible. Hebrews eleven six tells us, well, what is missing? What is missing since we can never please God? It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So the only way we can ever please God is once we have come into the faith. When we have been brought into the faith, we will be able to start pleasing God. So it might seem that people can do good, but Isaiah 64 says, all our righteous deeds are what? Like filthy rags. That literally meant menstrual rags in the Old Testament, like filthy, dirty rags. So what are we to do? We are called to repent and we are called to trust in God, which was given to us to be able to do by the Holy Spirit. But the warning that the Holy Spirit says is when people are convicted to trust in God, that conviction will only last for a certain amount of time. They may not stay convicted their entire life. So Hebrews 3.15 warns and says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Repent, come to him, accept him. And I think that's something we need to be able to remind people. It might sound scary, but say, Hey, if you feel a nudging of God, you need to step into it because that nudging might not always be there. That open door might not always be available. And so if you're feeling a nudging at your heart to come to Jesus, to get to know him more, to begin to trust him and who he says he is, please take that step of faith today. And I'll join you on that journey to help you learn more of what this looks like. So we need to communicate that to people because some people have that curiosity, have that conviction, but they're not willing to take that step, you know? And we can't just wait for the next altar call at church because so few churches still do altar calls. But still, we need to be the ones to say, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Okay, so here's a question. Even though non-believers sin, are they able to do good? I mean, what about the people that help feed the homeless or are fighting for our country? Or you could just think of all these things that non-believers do that still seem like they have what? A good heart, 
right? But didn't we just read Jeremiah that says, our hearts are deceitfully wicked and who can understand them? And didn't we just read that there is no one good, no, not one? And didn't we just read that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags? So how do we reconcile when we see a non-believer seemingly do something that seems beneficial and good and encouraging? How do we think of that theologically? Our tendency to sin does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. That's good news. We could be even more depraved, right? We could be even more evil, but we are still unable on our own to do anything that pleases God. On our own, we cannot do anything that pleases God and brings him glory. Why? Because we lack spiritual good in ourselves, as a non-believer especially. And so we cannot be spiritually good before God. God cares about spiritual goodness, moral goodness, okay? Although other humans might appear to be doing things that are good, again, God says all your righteousness is still seen as filthy before me. Every part of our being is affected. Our intellect, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, our goals, our motives, and our physical bodies. And we see that by Adam's one sin, everyone else was made sinners. Their goodness is not counted as good. It doesn't add up to them. Oh, they they must be able to get into heaven. Because look at their life and all the good things they did in our life. We cannot let ourselves go down that road that they were good enough. So God must give them grace and favor because of the goodness that we see in them. Does God hold us responsible only for the things we're able to do? Okay, this is a little deep, it's a little tricky, so I might have to read it twice, but does God hold us responsible only for the things I'm able to do? Or are we responsible for things we're not even able to do? Is really what that's saying. The idea that we are responsible before God Only for what we're able to do is actually contrary to scripture. Why? If our ability, think about this, limited our responsibility, I am only responsible for what I can do, right? If our ability limited our responsibility before God, then think of this, an extremely hardened sinner, someone that hates God and is doing all this evil, they're in great bondage to sin, could actually be less guilty before God than a mature Christian who was striving daily to obey him. Why? Because he's not able to do good. It doesn't make sense. He is not able to do good. He is evil. And so what, we're going to give him more grace from God because he's able to do it. It's not about being responsible for what we're able to do. The true measure of our responsibility is God says he demands absolute perfection. And none of us can maintain absolute perfection of God's moral law. Jesus said in Matthew 5:48, "You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." That is impossible for all of us. So God is requiring something of us that we cannot do on our own. All of us. We are required to be perfect as he is perfect. We are required to be holy as he is holy. That can only happen When the Holy Spirit, God himself is living in us and empowers us and sanctifies us to become more like that, right? So he does expect us to become something we cannot become on our own. He does expect more of us than we can do on our own. Oh, but I can't get over my anger. Oh, but I can't forgive that person. Oh, but I can't, I can't, I can't. And it's all about, nope, God, if it's in his word, you are still called to grow in that area. Here's where it gets tough. But if you believe in original sin, let's go on this journey together. Are infants guilty before they commit actual sin? And is there an age of accountability? Okay, so the term age of accountability is the assumption, when you hear that, it's the assumption that infants and young children are not held responsible for sin. We know they're sinners, but they're not held responsible for the sin, and they're not counted guilty before God. Does anyone see a theological contradiction with that? Age of accountability, I'll say it again, the people that believe that, is assuming infants and young children are not held responsible for sin and are not counted guilty before God. So if that was a true theology, what might be compromised? Or how could you justify that idea? We got to figure out how do we reconcile sin 
and salvation and children. Okay, so I'm going to relay to you kind of how Grudem explains it in his systematic theology, and we will talk about it. Okay, but here's what he says. If sin is inherited before birth, then children do have a guilty standing before God. Nowhere does it say we're not guilty. We do have a guilty standing before God. And God views them as sinners. Okay, and you can't begin as a child of God and say, oh, look, I'm a child of God. I'm innocent because I don't understand yet. Oh, look, now I understand. Now I'm no longer a child of God, but I can become a child of God again. Think about just that idea of they're not yet children of God just because they're technically children. And they're not innocent even if they don't know. You're still guilty even if you don't know. The law was given us to reveal our sins. So I'm just trying to have us think through this first. So God still sees you as a child of wrath until you accept him and become a child of God then. Nowhere in the scripture does it say you are a child of God, but then at an age of accountability, now you're held accountable. So this idea of age of accountability is nowhere in the Bible. It's not stated anywhere. It is something the church has created to help give us peace of mind because of the tragedy of children dying. So we just have to first know that, that that, that term, age of accountability, is not in the Bible. What about an infant dying before they're old enough to believe and understand the gospel if there isn't an age of accountability? What do we do? Can they be saved? That's the question, right? Is there hope for all of these aborted babies, all of these miscarriages, all of these tragedies, right? And I would say there still is. But we have to do it in lines. Again, part of systematic theology is you can't throw out one theology because you want to feel better over here. That's what we have to reconcile. Okay? And we haven't gotten to all the deep salvation. (laughs) That's coming in a few weeks. So we know that their own merits can't save them. Okay? Their own merits. They can't even do anything good yet. They're babies, right? Only Christ's redemptive work. Always the Bible says this. Only Christ's redemptive work that can save anybody. It didn't give an age limit. Only Christ's redemptive work can save. So how can this happen? Okay, this is incredible. It is possible for God to bring regeneration, which we will talk about more in a few weeks, but regeneration means new spiritual life, that this person has the life of God, has the spirit in them. God can bring regeneration to an infant even before he or she is born. A baby can have regeneration in the womb. I'm going to show you some verses to show that. So this was true of John the Baptist before John was born. The angel Gabriel said in Luke 1:15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So it would contend that John the Baptist was already saved and, and in the body of Christ before he was even technically born, okay? We might also look at David. He alluded to this in his own life in Psalms 22, 9 and 10. He said this, you made me trust you at my mother's breaths. So he wasn't, he's a, still a, a baby, okay? He's a young baby. He's still drinking milk from his mother. But then he goes on, he goes, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. David somehow knew that even since the womb, even since when he was at his mother's breast, he was already had the spirit of God in him. These two verses would allude that God is able to save infants in an unusual way, a different way, but it's not just because, oh, they're just not sinners. Oh, we're just going to ignore the gospel. Oh, they don't need a regenerated life. It's God is in charge of who he regenerates, of whose soul he changes, and he can change a soul whenever that soul is created. This idea of the normal way of people coming to Christ is by hearing and understanding the gospel. That is the normal way. And that is what brings regeneration when people put their faith in him. But maybe regeneration can happen before birth in light of these two passages. The thing I like about the theology is that it at least shows they have to have the spirit in order to go to heaven. They have to be regenerate to go to heaven because we, if we believe in original sin. But we do have to reconcile instead of just flippantly saying, well, all babies have to go to heaven. Like, well, how? Why? How does the theology come together? And so I do like that idea, even though it it seems a little peculiar that God can go in there and and put that spirit in. And we do have a few verses that show that. So it's not just like, oh, well, then 
because then you're still wondering, well, did the eight-year-old, the 12-year-old, did the 14-year-old, did the, and you're always wondering versus we're going to also just rest in God. At the end of the day, God is sovereign on all of our lives. But it also shows as parents and grandparents, we need to always be sharing that gospel. I mean, as soon as my kids started to be disobedient, I'm sharing the gospel. You're a sinner. You need a savior. This is the God. And like, it's not like they understood that at one and a half or maybe two and a half. But by three and a half, they were starting to at least repeat it back to me. They were at least knowing they're sinners and they need to repent. And they need to like, so we can't say, oh, but we just never taught that to them. <laughs> you know, like at what point is the, there's no age of accountability. At what point is it our fault that we didn't share the gospel with the next generation and share it clearly? So we have to just be careful with how much we give excuse to this age of accountability when it's not even in the Bible. Otherwise, why even go share our faith? Because if people never heard the gospel, won't they all go to heaven? No, they won't. You say, what about the people in the jungles of Africa? No, they're still going to go to hell if someone doesn't go share with them. And so that's why we have missionaries. So we got to be real careful because that's, that's how far you could go with that idea. Right. Let me go, I'll show you what, what he says about a few more things. How many infants does God save in this way? Is it all of them or not all of them? What would we surmise from scripture? Okay, we're just trying to figure this out from scripture, right? Not add stuff. That's all I'm trying to do. We cannot know, because scripture does not clarify this. Let's say that first, okay? We do not know how many infants, if it's all infants or not all infants. But we should recognize God has a frequent pattern throughout scripture to save the children of those who believe in him. So if we want to observe a pattern, it says his righteousness or ordinarily extended to the children's children in Psalm 103, 17. Obviously, this does not mean that God saves all the children of all believers because we know godly parents who have grown up children that have rejected the Lord and might die choosing to continue to reject the Lord. So God's pattern is to bring the children of believers to himself. That's the pattern we see. With regard to believers' children who die young, we have no reason to think that it would be otherwise. And David believed this when he lost his son with Bathsheba. He said in 2 Samuel 12, 23, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So he had confidence he would see his son again. And what's beautiful about that is that son was conceived in sin. David did love the Lord. He just had like a little sexual addiction over here, you know, a little lust problem. He did love the Lord. So we do have that example of one of the parents really did love the Lord. The reason I say that, their child was conceived in sin, and yet David has the faith he will see his son again. And I say that for the abortion conversation, because for people that have had abortions, you can feel like, oh, but that was murdering my child. Would that child be in heaven or hell? And I think God is a gracious God. That does not mean that child would be in hell because of your decision to abort the baby. Just like David conceived this child and it was a sinful act, he still believed the baby would be in heaven. God is a gracious God. So regarding of children of unbelievers who die in an early age, the scripture is just silent. That's all we know about scripture. The scripture is silent. It is not promising that they are in heaven or not in heaven. So we need to leave the matter in God's hands and trust him. Here's the thing. He is just and he is merciful. What we just have to say is, God, you are just and merciful, and we don't understand it, but we know that you are a God that can re regenerate any heart. And my prayer desire is that every child that truly, truly could not understand the gospel or hear the gospel yet, that you would, would have that child to be with you. And, but we just won't know. We just won't know. Because think of it this way. Let's, let's use the example of, it doesn't matter if it's a miscarriage or an abortion, if the child were to live, Right? If, for, forget that the child had a very short existence. Even if that child lived up to 80 years old, God outside of time would have still already known if that child would have chosen him or not. Do you see that? Outside of time, he would still know who would be a believer or not. I don't think there would have been miscarriages before the fall. I think that's just part of our bodies are not perfect anymore, you know? And there definitely wouldn't have been abortions before the fall. So, so I think God is gracious and he, he can see outside of time and he knows all. But we just have to somehow balance that he is just because we are sinners, but he is also merciful. This is a very difficult topic. And I think ultimately we just have to just realize again, the, the one big thing that we often say is the age of accountability, and that's not really in the Bible. So we want to just keep sharing Jesus with even the littles.
I think the main things is it could get very easy to say children are innocent. But we got to be careful because we have original sins. We just have to figure that out. But, but God is merciful and just and sovereign, and we're going to trust him. That's the sentence of it all, right? Versus quickly saying children are innocent, so therefore. That's the wrong theology. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So here's the question. Are there degrees of sin? Is one sin worse than another? <laughs> okay. Well, the answer is actually yes and no. The answer is actually yes and no. I'm going to show you how. It's depending on how you view it. So I'm going to show you how there are degrees of sin and how there's not degrees of sin. First, there, this is why there are not degrees of sin, if you were to answer no. We are all guilty before God. So any sin we do immediately makes us guilty before God, right? Any one sin, even what might seem like the smallest one, makes us legally guilty before God, and we are worthy of eternal punishment. Okay, that is why we would say that first idea of there is no degree of sin because all sin, any sin, one sin makes us guilty before God. So Paul says in Romans 5, 16, see it's Romans again, the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, going back to Adam, right? But then James says in James 2, 10 through 11, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So in terms of legal guilt, all sin are equally bad because they make us legally guilty before God and make us sinners, okay? So that's why sin is sin. You know, when we go around and we say, oh, but sin is sin. Your sin's not as bad as my sin or their sin's not as bad as my sin, okay? And then you get into the mass murderers. Oh, do you see where it starts to get a little like, what? There's no degree of sin. So where does the yes come in? The answer can also be yes, there are degrees of sins. There are different degrees of sins. Some are worse than others in that they have more harmful consequences in our lives and the lives of others and in terms of our personal relationship with God. So certain sin will affect us more with consequences, will affect our relationships with others more, and will affect our relationship with God. Let's see where this is. Scripture actually speaks of degrees of seriousness of sin. So when Jesus, Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, right before he was going to die in John 19, 11, he said, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus called something a greater sin. The sin of Caiaphas, who is the one that handed him over, was far greater, probably because Caiaphas had more knowledge and malice connected with it. Okay, so Jesus is holding one person greater in accountability for what happened than another person, even though both are guilty. You see that? Okay, another one. God showed Ezekiel visions of sin in the temple of Jerusalem. People were sinning in the temple of Jerusalem, like prostitution. And he kept repeating, but you will see even greater abominations, greater sin. You're going to see even greater sin. He said it multiple times. You will still see greater abominations that they will commit. The sin is going to get worse and worse. And then you look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, so he's putting the commandments in an order. And again, it's Jesus speaking here. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of God. So he's implying that there's actually lesser and greater commandments. He says in Matthew 23, 23 about the Pharisees, that they neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So they were not being praised for all the rules they were following because the greater law was that they should have justice, mercy, and faithfulness. God will hold someone to a higher accountability for intentional sin versus unintentional sin. Sin is still sin. Okay, but if we intentionally sin, there's a higher accountability than unintentional sin. Leviticus 5.17 says, If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he didn't know it, then realize his guilt. See, he's still guilty. And he shall bear his iniquity. So it's saying, man, they don't know they're sinners. You need to help them realize their guilt because they're still going to be held accountable for what they didn't realize was sin. 
So think of it this way. A sin is coveting my neighbor's car. But stealing it would cause even greater harm, right? And that would be a greater sin. But physically assaulting my neighbor to steal the car is even worse, right? (laughs) So our conclusion is that in terms of results and the degree of God's displeasure, some sins are certainly worse than others. Now, I want to do a little side note on how Catholics view sin because it's a little different than Protestants' view of sin. Catholics are going to put sin in two categories. Maybe you've heard of venial and mortal. Mortal sins are murder, adultery. Oh, and there's the blasphemy word, blasphemy. Murder, adultery, blasphemy. Their view is that mortal sins exclude people from the kingdom of God. If you're a murderer, adulterer, that's interesting since adultery happens everywhere now, you know. You're not going into the kingdom of God. Venial sins are like thoughtless chatter. We don't even realize all the stuff we're doing and it could be forgiven, but there's still punishment on earth or what they believe in purgatory. We do not believe in purgatory as Protestants. We don't see that in the Bible. So even though there are different severities of sins, we believe all sin can be forgiven by Christ. How does sin affect us? Well, it affects us holistically and because of sin, we deserve death, right? God said the penalty for Adam for eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was death in Genesis 2, 17. And that is the penalty for all sin. Romans 6, 23. Oh, look, Romans again. The wages of sin is death. The payment of our sin is death. We are condemned. Yet God offers us freedom from condemnation when we put our trust in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We should die to sin and live to righteousness. So if we genuinely accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we would not make a practice of continuing sinning. Sinning might be tempting, but it should not be highly desirous of us. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. I will sin until I'm heaven and completely sanctified, but I don't want to make a practice of any sin. But if a person practices sinning and there is no repentance, we should be concerned that they never truly put their trust in Jesus. If you see someone continually sinning and there is no repentance for it, they probably have no conviction of the Holy Spirit in them. True believers will earnestly and quickly confess their sins to God. Because we are now his children, God says he's faithful and just to what? Forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we're not going to get that forgiveness if we don't have the repentant, remorseful heart, right? So what happens when a Christian sins? First of all, our legal standing before God does not change. We're going to talk about that. Once we are justified, just as if I've never sinned, then you never can lose your justification. And so you are always still standing before God and seen as righteous, even if you sin. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because salvation is not based on your works. Salvation is not based on your obedience. It is a free gift of God. So we are still justified. Second, we are still children of God. You don't get out of the family when you sin. You are still members of his family. You are still what's called adopted. You cannot lose your adoption. But what does happen when we sin is our fellowship with God is disrupted and our Christian witness is damaged. These are the two biggest things. Your relationship with God is disrupted and your Christian witness is damaged. So God doesn't stop loving us when we sin, but he is displeased with us. I can continually love my children and be very displeased with their behavior, right? It does not contradict each other. He loves us but can be displeased with how we are living our life. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, it says in Ephesians 4.30. Because of this, God, what does he do to us? He chooses to discipline those he loves. He is going to discipline us because we are not condemned for eternity, but he does want us to care about our sanctification on this side of heaven. So he disciplines us for our good 
And Hebrews 12, 9 says that we may share in his holiness. He disciplines us to make us holy. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about Christians. Although they never can fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sin, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. And I think that's why in the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive me as I have forgiven others, that we need that constant repentance of sins in order to have a right relationship with God. Secondly, we talked about the fruitfulness of our ministry. The witness of our life can be damaged. Jesus says in John 15, 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So when we stray from Christ, we allow sin in our life. We diminish the degree that God can be using our life for his glory, and we will have less fruitfulness in our life. Paul says that if Christians yield themselves to sin, they increasingly become slaves to sin in Romans 6, 16. God wants Christians to progress on a path of righteousness, not a path of sinfulness. Okay, so when Christians sin, here's the third point, you will suffer a loss of heavenly reward. You will still go to heaven. You will still be with Christ, but you will lose in a heavenly reward. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says that our work not done in the spirit or with Christ will be burned up on the day of judgment. And that person will suffer loss, though themselves will be saved. So we have to remember, there is a judgment seat of Christ for Christians. Not for if you're getting into heaven or going to hell, but he's going to look at your life and say, what have you done for me? What have you done in walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? How have you lived out the fruit of the Spirit? How have you loved your neighbor? How have you shared the gospel? He is going to hold us accountable for how we live this life, or do we live it and damage our witness? And then finally, we need to be clear that just being a part of a church does not make us a Christian or guarantee our salvation. That a constant pattern of disobedience to Christ and a lack of the fruit of the Spirit would be a warning signal the person might not be a Christian inwardly. We're not allowed to judge, but that would be a good self-assessment or for you to present to someone else if they think they're a believer and they have no evidence of fruit in their life. It might not have been a heartfelt faith. 1 John 2, 4 says this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You can't say you know Jesus and not follow him. That's why I say to my kids, true followers of Jesus follow the Bible, and the Bible says da-da-da-da-da, right? I'm not going to say you're a Christian or not, but a true follower of Jesus follows the Bible. Last deep question for the day, what is unpardonable sin? Okay, so several passages speak about a sin that is not forgivable. But doesn't God forgive all sin? So how could this be? Jesus says in Matthew 12, 31 and 32, that here's where it first is mentioned. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. And then Jesus says in Mark 3, 29, similarly, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So this sin usually consists of malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work when he's attesting to Christ. And what the person's doing is instead of saying it's the Holy Spirit, they're going to say, it's Satan. Satan's doing this. It's sa Satan's, they're not acknowledging the Holy Spirit's work. Here's an example with the Pharisees. Okay, They clearly saw the work of the Holy Spirit happening with Jesus, yet they rejected Jesus' authority and his teaching. And what did they say? It's attributed to the devil. They pretty much attributed what Jesus was doing to Satan instead of the Holy Spirit. And these were religious leaders, okay? That is what's called blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, which is the unpardonable sin. 
So it's this idea of slanderously saying the work of the Holy Spirit is actually the work of the devil. Does that make sense? Like their eyes are so blind, so hatred, so much does not want to bring Jesus or God glory that they are attributing God's work to satanic work. That is unpardonable. Does that make sense? So it's not someone says, oh, God can go to hell or they're, they're, they're saying something against God or against Jesus. That, that doesn't mean that's unpardonable. Does that make sense? It's someone that understands the Bible, understands Jesus, and still would say, nope, I'm going to claim that that's Satan, not the Holy Spirit. That has a really vindictive, really hateful. There's a difference of walking away from a faith they may never have had versus someone saying, the Bible is evil. Jesus is evil. All that Christians do is actually evil. It's of Satan. That would pre fit more under the blaspheme of Holy Spirit than someone that just, they just walked away from the faith. They're deconstructing their faith because they were hurt by Christians. That's different. Okay, so the last one, and I just have a sentence on this. Why does God punish sin? It is simply because God's righteousness demands it so that he would be glorified in the universe that he created. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. In the cross, we have a clear demonstration of the reason God punishes sin if he doesn't punish sin, he would not be a righteous God, and there would be no ultimate justice in the universe. So when God punishes sin, justice occurs. And I think, again, isn't that interesting? When we think of, oh, this person has sinned, they, deserve, they need God's justice. We think of, of condemnation, damnation, but we have to see that his justice is the best way to show his character. You know, and so he, he has to have justice with sin because he is a righteous God. So even when it's hard to reconcile, oh, but God's justice might be on this person, which might be condemnation and damnation, we have to again recognize it's because we are all sinners and he is a righteous God and must judge sin. So we can't say he's merciful on some certain things and, and not on others. So, all right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we don't understand all of this, but God, we choose at the end of the day to trust you, that we know we love you, trust you, that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are just, you are merciful, that when we didn't deserve it, Christ died for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that Jesus, you decided to put all of the sin of the world on you so that we could decide to put our faith in you and have your righteousness be put on us. And so thank you for that. God, for the things we don't understand, we choose by faith to trust you. We trust in your character and who you are. And we know that one day we will fully worship you for all the decisions you have made and because you are good and you are the only one that is good. Only God is good. And so even the things we can't reconcile in our mind, we just want to say we praise you and we trust you today, Lord. I pray that you would continue to convict sin in our own lives, that we would live lives of repentance, continual confession, so that we would not experience discipline, so that we would not hurt our witness for you, Lord, and that we would continue to grow in the righteousness and holiness that you desire for us. In your name we pray. Amen.